We're in week two now of uh, our study in Elijah. We got off to a great start last week with Brother Omar uh, teaching and, and doing just a great job in sort of setting the stage of Elijah's ministry. <clears throat> um, as we sort of, he covered a lot of the things that kind of lead up to his first appearance in the Word, which we're going to look at tonight. So we're going to be in, as you can see, chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Um, so if you've got your Bibles or a device, let's get there together and see this first appearing of Elijah in the narrative of Scripture. Um, much of what we talked about last week is sort of the history of the kings. Um, we saw that the lineage of bad kings that are kings over Israel and Judah. Um, and one in particular that Omar talked about last week was Omri. Um, and we looked at 1 Kings 16.25 that let us know very specifically that Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he did more evil than all who were before him. And that's saying something. Uh, not a good guy. The level of debauchery and corruption and immorality, idolatry, all of that was unparalleled with King Omri. Uh, but the interesting thing is that Omri dies. And we should not miss that. Because all kings die, by the way. Uh, and he was no exception to that. They die and they stay dead. There's only one king who died and didn't stay dead. And who's that? Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Jesus. Um, so Omri, as, as 1 Kings 16, 28 says, slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And so the kingdom passes to his son. And who's his son? Ahab, that's right. Who is not only worse than his dad, but Ahab's wife is so awful that she's mentioned as well. And her name is what? <clears throat> yeah, there's not a lot of parents who look at their baby girl, their newborn baby girl, and go, let's name her Jezebel. That's just not common, I would guess. And if your name is Jezebel, I, I apologize, but I think there's a reason for that, that babies aren't named Jezebel. But when the interesting thing about Jezebel is that when she married Ahab, she's the one that brought the idolatrous worship of Baal into the religious framework of God's people. She was the one that introduced that. Now, here's the thing. Baal worship had been around a long time before that. Um, it originated specifically with the Canaanites, but it wasn't until Ahab married Jezebel that it began to infect God's people. And the downward spiral at that point just accelerated. I think it was Chuck Swindoll who, who commented that moving from King Omri's reign to King Ahab's reign is kind of like moving from Jesse James to Bonnie and Clyde. You go from one to two really, really bad people because they are doubly terrible. So it's interesting that that's the landscape into which Ahab now, I mean, I'm sorry, Elijah now steps into as a prophet. And as Omar shared last week, he was, he was probably big, burly, and brash. We know he was brash, but he's probably also big and burly. Um, initially, anyway, he was brash. And his introduction is in 1 Kings 17. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 1. And, and if you read, you know, kind of as we looked at last week. Mark, I've got a little bit of a ring if you can kick it down just a hair. If you looked at sort of the end of chapter 16 last week, and then you just look at verse 1 of chapter 17, you notice that it's a pretty abrupt, abrupt transition. There's nothing, there's nothing smooth about that, and that's for a reason. Because the contrast here is between darkness... Uh, the darkness specifically that Israel is spiraling down into at this moment in history, and the light of hope that comes from God and his prophet that he's sending to his people. Because God's going to use Elijah as a disruptor, and I mean that in a positive sense. And we'll see that in the, in the weeks to come as well. But he uses him particularly as a disruptor for God's glory, not for his own glory. So let's not forget that Elijah is a prophet. And what did the Old Testament prophets do? What was their role specifically? Well, they spoke on behalf of God to God's people 
to do two things. One is foretell. Yes, the Old Testament prophets spoke of the future. But they also would foretell. Foretell, foretell. Meaning that they would speak truth to God's people. They would speak the truth of who God was. And they would call people, specifically calling out their sin and call them to repentance. Um, and by the way, faithful biblical preaching today should reflect that. Um, we should speak of God's future judgment, that it is coming like an onrushing train uh, and will at some point intersect with human history. And we should call people to repentance and faith in Christ. The solution for their just judgment. Um, prophets were just not called to be happy talk preachers. If, if, as you look in the Old Testament, that's just not what you'll find with these guys. And I do love that personally. Um, because pastors today don't need to be happy talk preachers either. What we're called to do is we're called to faithfully exposit this word, right? And, um, and convey the truth that's, that's in God's word, calling sinners to repentance uh, so that they might trust in Christ and Christ alone. So let's hear kind of how this all starts and see what God does in the life of one of his servants, the prophet named Elijah. Let's read together. We're just going to be in the first seven verses of chapter 17. So uh, let's take a look at that passage. And um, I'm reading from the ESV tonight, just FYI. Verse 1 starts by saying, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord of God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and he lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. It is hard to believe that in just about three months, um, training camp for the NFL will begin. And I will be once again sucked back into my love-hate relationship with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, you can begin praying for me now. I would appreciate that. But for those of you that follow professional football, what is the point of training camp? What does every coach want to come out of camp, uh, training camp having accomplished? What is it? Not out of training camp. That's, that'll come much later. What's the goal of and the point of training camp? It's to get the guys ready for what? Conditioning to play the game. Yep. The season's coming up. It's to get them ready for that first game, that first regular season game. Get them ready to play, prepare them for what's to come. And in a sense, that's what God's doing here in the very beginning part of chapter 17. Um, he meets with Eliza, Elijah in an in a oasis to really strengthen him and prepare him for what's coming. And if you know his story, there's a lot that's, about, that's around the corner. Um, lots of challenges ahead for this guy. And if you don't know what challenges are ahead for this guy, keep coming on Wednesday nights because we're going to walk through them and learn about these upcoming challenges that he has to face. So what I want to do tonight is sort of walk through the steps of progression that basically take place in the, in the verses that we just read and, and as this training camp unfolds. Uh, so the very first one on here is Elijah's prophecy. And that's in verse one. This is sort of how it begins. This, this young, no-name whippersnapper burst onto the scene and he goes before King Ahab, kind of out of the blue. And, and King Ahab, of course, has taken wickedness to a whole new level but that does not cause fear in Elijah, which I love, by the way. 
And Elijah stands before him and predicts this drought. Now we're not told the circumstances of how he went before the king. The Bible just doesn't mention that. Uh, just that he did it. But think about it, friends. Who is he to do that? Because he's nobody important. Not to Ahab, anyway. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt insignificant? You ever felt like nobody knows you or nobody uh, appreciates or even is aware of what you do? Ever felt that way? Well, how would you like to be a Tishbite from Tishbe? <laughs> Modern archaeologists don't even know where Tishbe was or is today. That's how small and insignificant this place was. Yes, Elijah was a prophet of God, but he was from nowhere important. His background was unimpressive. When people ask me where I'm from, I can answer in three ways. I can tell them that I am from the sovereign nation of Texas. Uh, I can tell him that I'm from the Dallas area because I grew up in sort of the greater Dallas area. Or I can tell them very specifically that I'm from Rockwall, which is the town that I spent most of my growing up years in. And if Rockwall sounds podunk, I assure you, it is podunk. Uh, we only had two stoplights in the whole town and both of them blinked red. So two blinking, and some of you grew up in a town like that, two blinking red stoplights, that was it. Uh, for restaurants, we had Sonic and Dairy Queen. We had um, a 7-Eleven, we had one grocery store, and we had a Walmart that was out on the interstate, but that was before Walmart carried groceries, so it was a tiny Walmart. That's where I'm from. Unimpressive, don't you think? <laughs> Insignificant. And this is how the Bible introduces Elijah. And that's not by accident. That's actually intentional as a part of his story. If you read your Bible, you know that God normally uses those who seem to be insignificant, right? And he does so because he uses us and them and Elijah, not for our glory, but for his own glory. And he's about to do something very significant um, when this insignificant prophet named Elijah steps up to the plate. And so Elijah gives his prophecy right at Ahab. Verse 1, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except for my word. Now, if you don't know how God operates, that seems like a very braggadocious, prideful, narcissistic statement. But Elijah's confidence is in God, not in himself. Somebody tell me from last Wednesday night, uh, what does the name Elijah mean? Anybody remember? There it is. I just heard it. The Lord is God. The Lord is my God. That's right. And on a technical level, the Hebrew name simply means my God is Yah. Yah being short, Yah or Jah being short for the long form, Yahweh. My God is Yahweh, which normally in your Bibles would be translated as Lord in a modern English translation. So Elijah's name here corresponds precisely to the theme of the ministry that he's undertaking and he's just beginning here. God is ahead of him. The Lord is his God. And there is no other option for him. His name is the Lord is my God. It's also the theme of his life. And we'll see that throughout this study. And so when he begins this statement to King Ahab with as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, he's making a very powerful point here that you're not my daddy, you're not my Lord, I have one, and his name is Yahweh. You realize that the statement, Jesus is Lord, is a political statement, don't you? It always has been, it always will be a political statement. I know lots of people in the church think we shouldn't talk about politics. And I agree. It's, it's mostly a vain effort. 
But Jesus is Lord is a political statement. It was in the first century Rome, for sure. It is today for us. And it was back then in ancient Israel in Elijah's day. Because politicians, presidents, tyrants, kings, rulers of all kinds don't like to be told that there is an authority that it reigns over them. They just don't like that. But there is an authority that reigns over them. Praise God. I'd go jump off a cliff if there wasn't. Goodness gracious. But his name is Yahweh. It's Jesus. So this blunt force trauma here that Elijah uses to kind of begin his relationship with Ahab, you notice there's no niceties. There's no, hi, how are you? I'm, I'm Elijah, good to meet you. No, it's just up in your face. And he goes on to prophesy that there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Pretty stout. Now, this prophecy here is an affront to all that mattered to the king at that time. Because Baal was the god of rain and storms. Think about the prophecy that he just made in his face. If you're going to stare down the highest human ruler in the land, the one who has given himself over to the worship of the rain god, this is a precisely what you would say. Take his feet out from under him. So this prophecy is a big deal. See, the rain provided life to people then, just like it does today, by giving them water to drink, by watering their crops and the vegetation. But even so, the people, sadly, at that time, followed their king and their queen into this Baal idol worship. So the drought really covers everybody. Nobody's exempt here. Elijah evidently had never read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Because that's not a priority for him here. He's going to speak truth and do what God has called him to do. And I admire that about him. See, prophets don't care about the praise of other people. They fear God more than they fear people. And actually, Psalm 147, verse 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. So God's pleased with Elijah. Now, we'll see a lot of failings of Elijah in this study, no doubt. But at this point, he's doing well. So first, we have Elijah's prophecy. Secondly, we have God's precept. God's precept. Anybody know what a precept is? It's a fancy word for command. And I didn't want to use command because I'm going to have six P's up there on the thing by the time we're done, right? I've been, I've been working with Russell Howard for almost 21 years. I think he's infected me. But in the wake of Elijah's prophecy here, God gives him a precept commanding him to do some very specific things. Verse 2, look at it with me. And the word of the Lord came to him. This is before the actual command comes. This phrase, and the word of the Lord came to him. See, what's fascinating about this is that it implies that there was a previous word of the Lord that had already come to him. Now think about that. How did Elijah know what to say to the king in verse 1? Well, he knew because he got it from the Lord. God gave Elijah the prophecy that he proclaimed to Ahab in verse 1. That didn't come from him. It came from the living God. So the prophecy of the drought is going to be punitive, not only for Ahab and Jezebel, but it's going to be punitive, more importantly, for Israel. This drought's going to show a disobedient people who's really in charge of all things, including the rain. It's a direct challenge to Baal's authority. And now Elijah obeyed and shared this prophecy with this earthly king. Why did he do that? Well, because he cares more about his heavenly king than he does about his earthly king. And his heavenly king gives him more direction here in verse 3. This is a specific command. This is the precept. Depart from here. God speaking to Elijah. Depart from here. Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth 
which is east of the Jordan. Now, I just love this because in obedience to God, what Elijah does here is he speaks with courage to the king. And he says what God has instructed him to say. And then in verse 2 and 3, God gives him further insight. That's really important. Brothers and sisters, in the Christian life, obedience leads to further insight. It's the way it works. God didn't give further insight to those who are blatantly disobedient to what he's already revealed in his word, right? And that should not be lost on us. And listen, if you believe you're stuck in a sort of a standstill or a, somehow you stalled in your walk with Christ, maybe there's an area or two of obedience that you know you just need to start obeying in. And maybe that will lead to further insight to spur you on to grow in your faith. The precept in verse 3 is depart from here. If you want to get real, real specific, what's the command? It's depart from here. Depart from here and go where? Well, he's describing this oasis that is a long way away. And he says, that's where I will meet you, Elijah. What's the oasis called? What's the name of it? Kareth? He, in Hebrew, that means cut off or cut down. The word actually is a sort of a, it's a verb. <laughs> but it's also a name at the same time. So think about that. Cut off or cut down. Now, again, what is Elijah going to do? What is God taking him to do? He's taking him to training camp. <laughs> So God's about to prepare Elijah for what's next. And in order to prepare him for what's next, he's going to cut him off and he's going to cut him down. I mean, you think the smartest political move here would be to stay near the king and keep your agenda issues before the king, right? Make sure that the issues that matter to Elijah get on the king's agenda. Elijah should be a governmental lobbyist, I guess, right? No. That's not how God works. God cuts him off from all the busyness that he's doing for the Lord. He cuts him off from all other people. This is going to be a solitary assignment, a solitary training camp. And he removes Elijah to a place where it's just him and the Lord. And did you notice the word hide there in verse 3? God's also going to cut him off to protect him from Ahab's wrath. Do you have a daily time, my friend, where you get cut off from everything else where it's just you and the Lord? For a long, long time in Christian history, that has been a discipline that blesses and promotes growth in the Christian heart. The more you and I are in the Word the more obedient to God's commands we're going to be. The more receptive to His precepts we're going to be. It's where you and I get chiseled and shaped to be useful for the Lord's purposes. That's what God's going to do with Elijah at Kareth. He instructs Elijah before verse 1, and he obeys, and he faces the king. And then God grants him further insight and as we study Elijah's story, you'll see this, this phrase that keeps coming up, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. You'll see that about seven times over the course of our study. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Did they have the Bible like we have today? No, they did not. God was revealing himself, and again, as a prophet, speaking through him. And in this instance, in verse 2 of the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the statement is followed by him obeying that particular instruction. Don't miss that. <laughs> it's a beautiful picture of what our daily time with the Lord should be like. Refreshing instruction for all the purpose of obedience to God. Now, Elijah was specifically instructed to go in a particular direction. What was that? East. Go east. 
God says, turn eastward. Who else in the Bible had to go eastward? Anybody know? Speak up if you want to take a guess. It's okay. We won't, we won't jump on you if you're wrong. Jonah? Yep. Who else needed to go east? Moses. Moses, exactly. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Moses is a good comparison to Elijah. By the way, Adam and Eve had to go east too, but that's another story. Um, probably the best comparison to Elijah and his training camp was Moses and his training camp. He had to go east as well. Um, Moses left Egypt and he went east to Midian. And there was a season that the Lord worked on him, preparing him for what was next. By the way, where else were Elijah and Moses paired? Anybody remember? The Mount of Transfiguration, that's right. Jesus, Elijah and Moses, and the disciples said, let's just stay here. <laughs> let's don't go back down there. This is good. But now Moses and Elijah both had to go east because their trust in God was about to be tested. So what does God do specifically with Elijah in his grace? He cuts him off to develop and strengthen Elijah's faith in him. So we have Elijah's prophecy. We have God's precept. Number three, God's promise. That's what verse four is all about. God's promise. Look at verse four with me, if you will. You shall drink from where? The brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now let's talk grammar before we get to meaning and application here. So in a modern English translation like the ESV that I'm reading from, what verb tense is the word shall? Those of you who know grammar. What verb tense is the word shall? Future. I heard it. Future tense, right? And that, and that makes sense. Elijah's not at Kareth yet. He's hearing about Kareth. But God's promise is that he will drink from that brook once he gets to Kareth. Okay? So it's future tense. But what verb tense is the second part of that verse? In verse 4, have commanded. What tense is that? It's past tense. Fascinating. <laughs> Now, biblical Hebrew does not have verb tenses quite like English and Greek do, but Hebrew relies on the timing of a verb to be conveyed by the context. The good news is about this is that the context matches what we're just talking about and how the ESV structures the sentence in English. The first part is future tense of verse 4. The second part is past tense. So when we study the Bible, we want to ask questions. One of the questions that's always helpful whenever you're studying the Bible is what does this say about God? Way too many people read their Bible and the first question that they ask is what does this say about me? Uh, that's a bit narcissistic because this book is not about me. This book is about him, right? I learn a lot about me from this book, <laughs> but it's primarily about him. Uh, so asking the question, what does this say about God, is a good thing. And the first part of verse 4, again, you shall drink from the book, the brook, just reminds us that God makes promises to his people. Something as simple as that is a great observation to make when you're reading the Bible. What does it say about God? Well, it says that God makes promises to his people. And guess what? That's still true today for you and I. Um, for those who are in Christ, we've got a complete record of the promises of God right here, either on our phone or in our laps or in our hands. But the second part of verse 4 is really what intrigues me. He says, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Again, past tense. So the question becomes, what does this say about God? Well, it shows us one of the core characteristics of the amazing and mysterious God we serve. And that characteristic, it's one of the omnis, it's omnitemporal. Omni meaning all or universal, temporal meaning timely. So God is always all timely. 
He's omnitemporal. See, God exists, exists both within and outside of linear time. As you think about that. Mull that over for just a minute. He exists both within and outside of linear time. Why? Because he created linear time. When did he create linear time? Genesis 1 and 2 is when he created linear time. And though we only exist within linear time, you could say that we are constrained or limited by linear time. God is not. Now, we will eternally live and exist in one of two places, either heaven or hell, for all eternity moving forward. But it is only God who has been eternally existent at all times. He's omnitemporal. He's always been. Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Heavens, it's, it's first two of Reginald Abair's incredible hymn from 1826, Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy, Holy, all the saints adore Thee. Casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before me. Here it comes. Which wert and art and evermore shall be. Which wert and art and evermore shall be. That cracked me up when I was a kid. I was like, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> you know what that means? It means he was and he is and he evermore shall be. That's what it means. He's omnitemporal. God's not restrained, constrained like we are to linear time. He exists both within linear time and outside of linear time because he is the creator of all things, including linear time. And that's important when it comes to the promises of God. See, when God makes a promise inside linear time, like we're looking at here at verse 4, that promise has actually already been kept, which is why it's in past tense. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. It's not only legitimate in the sense that, well, it's God, and because God made the promise, it's as good as having been kept. No, that's true, but it already has been kept because God is eternal. He's timeless, and I know that's a head-scratcher. I don't pretend to understand all the ins and outs of that. But it reminds me of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 in the Old Testament, where God himself speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord's. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who is radically different from us. Amen? Praise God, He is. And He's given us a catalog of promises to His people. And yes, He's the one making those promises. And because He's the one making those promises, they are as good as kept. But because He is omnitemporal, from God's vantage point, they have already been kept. Even if you and I have yet to experience their keeping. That's where Elijah is right here in this moment as he hears this promise. So we have Elijah's prophecy, God's precept, God's promise. Number four, Elijah's pliability. That's in verse five. Look at verse five with me. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. When I die, I would love for that first phrase of verse 5 to be on my headstone. So he went and did according to the Lord. I would love for that to be the case, but it's not true often enough for me. And I don't know if it's true enough for you, but it also wasn't true enough for Elijah. <laughs> Again, we got more to come with this guy. 
And we'll see some of those moments in the Wednesday nights ahead, but it was true for him in this moment, and that's important. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. Why? Because he was pliable. You know what that means? You know what the word means? I don't want to use a word that some may not know what it means. It's the opposite of rigid. Um, meaning that it's something that can be shaped or molded or bent, formed, if you will, into the desired purpose that the person who's shaping and bending and forming it desires. That's what obedience looks like for you and I. Obedience to the Lord is pliability. It's doing what God commands because we implicitly trust His purposes for shaping us into the image of His Son. And we submit to the means that God uses to accomplish our sanctification. And guess what? Sometimes those means are not pleasant at all. Many of you know that in this room. Because he uses stuff like suffering and trials and conflict like we talked about Sunday. His methods include the conviction of sin and the consequences of sin that linger even after we've been forgiven. All to refine us and sanctify us for his purposes. And here, Elijah did exactly as God commanded him. And so whenever you see that in your life or someone else's life that you know, you should celebrate that. If you have young kids in your house, when they obey, mom and dad, go nuts. Even if it's a small thing, Go nuts. Now, as they grow up, they may think that you're weird. Well, no, they're going to think you're weird, no doubt about it. But they will also remember one day, mom and dad celebrated our obedience. That must be a good thing. It must be a good thing to obey. And child of God, it is, right? So let's celebrate that. It's a good pattern to set for life. It's what the... Uh, father of the prodigal son did, right? When he finally realized he needed to obey. And he came home. Elijah's pliability. It's an important thing. It's one of those verses, verse 5, you just blow right by. Of course he did what God said. Oh no! <laughs> the, the longer that you and I live, the more we realize just how depraved we are. That's what walking with Jesus does for a long time you realize, wow, I thought I was a sinner when I was 13 and I trusted Christ to save me, but I really know now just how capable I am of being a sinner. We praise God, though. Elijah obeyed here. So, Elijah's prophecy, God's precept, God's promise, Elijah's pliability, I told you, I was going to get all the P's in. God's provision is verse 6. God's provision. Look at it with me. I love this. I just love this. This is so sweet. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. And because he's a guy, they brought bread and meat in the evening. No, it doesn't say that. But <laughs> The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So what happened? Well, remember, God has cut Elijah off, enabling him in this season to have some time, just he and the Lord. God has put Elijah here in a position where he has to depend upon the Lord. And that is an uncomfortable position. We do not like to be in that position, but that's where we grow. And honestly, Elijah has no other choice. And I know there have been seasons in your life probably as well where you have realized, I have no other choice but to trust and depend upon God in this because I can't fix this, I can't correct this, I can't understand this, I can't even push through it just with my own effort. That's exactly where God wants us. And that's exactly where he wanted Elijah. And during this time, what God does is he protects him from the threat of a wicked king here. And he provides Elijah what he needs before Elijah heads into another test of faith, again, that we'll look at next week. So there's a lot of God's provision going on here. 
which is also easy to miss. God not only cuts him off to protect him from Ahab's wrath, but he also cuts him off to provide for him. Think about it. There's a brook there with water. Why would that be important? <laughs> it's kind of important in a time of drought, right? And there are ravens that will feed him twice a day. See, when the Bible speaks about the wilderness, um, which is where Elijah is, it's not referring to the jungle or, or even a, a temperate environment like Colorado. When, when the Bible speaks of the wilderness, it's talking specifically about an arid, dry, rocky, sandy, rough, difficult place. That's the wilderness. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not a typical place for birds. <laughs> so how are birds getting to this guy? The Lord. It's the Lord. God's sovereign over birds. You know that? You ever had a bird poop on your truck right after you wash it? I have. I have to remind myself, God's sovereign over birds. <laughs> These birds are, are an unusual means actually uh, getting bread and meat to him because they're considered unclean. Ravens were considered unclean, one of the unclean animals. And so Elijah's probably not real crazy about this every day, seeing these birds come in. I mean, he's a good Jew. <laughs> he's a faithful Israelite. And these unclean birds are bringing this stuff for him to eat? Really? See, God's provision comes to him in an unusual form. You ever had that happen to you? Where God has made provision for you at a time or in a place or in a way that you did not expect it or even actually that it would not have been your preference if you could have designed it. He's God like that. <laughs> he gets to do that. One of the things that we're seeing here in verse 6 on a micro level with Elijah specifically is how on a much bigger scale God, are, God is going to treat his people when they go into exile. And be assured, exile is coming for God's people in this moment. So how does he treat his people when they are in exile? exactly like he treats Elijah here. This micro example is giving us a macro glimpse of what's to come. And how is God treating Elijah here? He's providing for him. He's caring for him. He's making provision for him, even in unexpected and extraordinary ways, even with unexpected means that are not his preference but he is providing. Boy, oh boy, in 2023, is it easy for you and I to mix up the difference between a need and a want. Amen? God was providing for his needs, even if it wasn't being delivered in the way that he wanted. So we have Elijah's prophecy, God's precept, God's promise, Elijah's pliability, God's provision, and last but not least, Oh, it did fit on the screen. God's providence. Verse 7. Look at it with me. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Not a complicated verse. But the question kind of jumps out to you when you read that verse. How long was after a while? <laughs> Wouldn't that be good to know? <coughs> Bible doesn't say. But we know it was sometime later, obviously that the brook dried up because of the drought, which the drought ended up lasting three and a half years. We know a specific number for how long this drought lasted. But we don't know how long between the time he got to Kareth to the time that it dried up. But we do know that the brook drying up is a bad thing, right? If you're Elijah, that's a bad thing. This is where providence comes in. God's providence. I've mentioned God's providence before, but when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about 
God's wise purpose in what he does. That's a simple definition of providence. God's wise purpose in what he does. And that's different than God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his right and his authority to do what he does. That's a bit different. Because God does have the right and authority to rule over all things as creator of all things. But the manner in which God rules over all things is always wise, the Bible teaches us. It's never arbitrary. God never operates in a random fashion. There's wisdom in all that he does. And that's his providence. So he's wise when he floods the earth in Genesis chapter 7. And he's wise when he brings a drought here in verse 7 of this passage. So let me ask you a question. Does God have the right and the authority to cause a drought? Does he? Of course he does. And we should never be flippant about that. His providence and his sovereignty are mysterious things. And we should not be flippant about when they are applied. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, including rain and no rain. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, including people that live through a drought and people that die in a drought. Again, in his sovereignty, he has the right to do with his creation as he sees fit. But in his providence, he does what he does for his wise purposes. And the drought here is a providential event. And we will see in the next couple of Wednesdays what God does in and through this particular drought. And it is fascinating. But we already know that Elijah had learned a lot in this short seven verses, however long this training camp took place. He learned that God would and could provide for him. And as we'll see next week, Elijah's going to find out that God could do the same for other people too. Even Gentiles. God can even provide for Gentiles. Oh, scandalous. It's going to be scandalous next week. We'll be studying it. But we're off to a beautiful start here as God meets with Elijah in an oasis that refreshes him and prepares him for what's next. It's a training camp for getting him ready for important things to come. See, Elijah doesn't know yet all that's going to come. And that's a good thing. I've heard lots of people over the years say, I want to know what's going to happen. I'm trying to trust God through this, but I want to know how this is going to turn out. Well, just think about all the years that you've walked with Jesus, if you're a believer in here. And at the very beginning of that journey, if God had showed you everything and how all things were going to turn out in your life to this point, how would you have responded? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I was 13, as I said earlier, when I came to faith in Christ. And if God had showed me all the things that were going to take place in my life, I, ah, never mind, I changed my mind, Lord. I'm out. Elijah doesn't know what's ahead. And we should remember that Elijah, even though he is heroic at times, is not the hero of this story. He most certainly is a, is a prophet that God has charged and equipped to speak truth to God's people and to speak on God's behalf. And he was recognized as one whose word could be trusted, and that's a good thing. Believers today should be people whose word can be trusted. Something very commendable about that in Elijah. And his ministry, I'll go ahead and spoil the story, his ministry lasts his whole lifetime. And he has a great impact on God's people. But even so, his life was temporary. Turn over to James chapter 5, if you will. There's a fascinating little statement that you can just blow by and miss that's actually about Elijah in the New Testament. James 5, beginning in the middle of verse 16. I'm going to wait till the page turning dies down. 
because I want you to see this. What we're going to observe about Elijah is not the point of the verses, but it's still fascinating. James 5, verse 16, middle of verse 16, makes the same point. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. My favorite phrase in those two verses is, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Translation, he's a regular guy like you and me. <laughs> but that is an extraordinary statement about an ordinary person. But you know what? In contrast to Elijah, Jesus was no ordinary person. He was a human, fully human, and yet fully God. He was a perfect prophet, though, unlike Elijah. And the irony of Jesus is that all of the Old Testament prophets prophesied about his coming, <laughs> either his first coming or his second coming, but they were certainly prophesying about his coming. And he's not just a prophet with a message, but Jesus himself is the message because he's the Savior that's come to save sinners like you and me. Let us never forget that even as we study somebody like Elijah in the Old Testament, that Jesus is the only real hero of the story. He's the only one that qualifies because he did what no one else can do, and that is truly to save us. All throughout the Old Testament, you're, as you read it, you begin to see, oh gosh, there needs to be a better prophet. There needs to be a better king. There needs to be a better judge. There needs to be a better sacrifice over and over and over again. And guess what? God answered all of those concerns at Bethlehem as he sent his son to be a ransom, as Jesus said, for many, to die for our sins so that we might be forgiven and know him. Mm -hmm. 